KRMG's Russell Mills, and this is KRMG In-Depth, the podcast. Thanks for listening today. Coast to coast, folks are screaming about gasoline prices, natural gas prices, heating oil. We are definitely in a situation where there is more demand than supply, but why exactly? How much of this is due to the pandemic? How much to business decisions made by people in the energy industry, or indeed political decisions made by those who aren't? Well, for some of those answers, I turn to Tom Sang. He runs the School of Energy Business at the University of Tulsa. He's my go-to guy on this stuff. And I asked him about predictions that we could see $150 a barrel oil by the end of the year. Here is that conversation. And thanks again for listening. All right, we are on with Tom Sang, who runs the uh, School of Energy business over there at the University of Tulsa, teaches people literally from around the world about the petroleum and the natural gas and all that uh, energy type stuff. And you've been doing it for a while, Tom. And, you know, so you're kind of my go-to guy when I'm trying to figure out what in the hell is going on. And right now, I just saw an article where somebody's predicting that we could see 100 and $50 a barrel oil. Now, I, I don't know that we're going to see 150 by 125 loads. Absolutely realistic at this point. And the question becomes, why? And it's going to be a long answer. So let's break it down a little bit. <laughs> sure. You know, you, you and I have talked about this before, and we really do. We do have to go back to March of 2020. Um, because, you know, the inception of the pandemic just crushed demand for energy across the world. And that led to dramatically lower oil prices. Um, oil companies laid workers off. Uh, and then if you go back literally a year ago right now, we started to see sort of this opening, right? States were opening up, various countries were opening up. And so demand started picking up a year ago and demand kept picking up. Um, but the problem was the oil companies, you know, the, the prices about a year ago were, were around the $60 barrel and heading higher. But, you know, essentially they had not been doing a lot of new drilling and production because prices were so low and demand was so low. So demand took off. Supply hasn't kept up. Um, and, you know, so, it, it, I mean, on the one hand, we're in a situation where this is truly a supply demand, basic economics 101. Um, and then the other thing that happened, too, was uh, essentially when, when things started opening up again and demand started increasing, you had shareholders of these publicly traded oil and gas companies, Russell, saying, hey, hold on a second. Oil prices are going up. You're not going to go into debt chasing those prices, right? 70, 75, 80, which, I mean, five years ago, let's face it, $90 oil, um, these companies would be borrowing everything they could. They'd be out there just poking holes everywhere and, and drawing oil. But the shareholders have finally said, no, you're going to use some fiscal restraint. And so here's what you're going to do. You're going to, you know, you're going to slow things down a bit. You're going to pay off your existing debt, or at least start paying it now. You're going to pay us dividends um, and potentially buy some shares, get some share appreciation, raise our share prices. So what the focus has been has been free cash flow. So you've got essentially shareholders pulling in the reins on publicly traded oil and gas companies, emphasizing free cash flow because they want dividend payment and they want share appreciation and they do not want them to go into debt. So if you, I'd say basically if you start with probably third quarter of 21, 
fourth quarter of 21, um, and then the entire calendar year of 2021, you start looking at earnings statements from these large publicly traded oil and gas companies, Russell, they are literally bragging about their billions of dollars of free cash flow. And, and again, it's like a big neon sign to shareholders and investors. Look at us. Um, you know, we're not, we're paying down debt. Um, I think, gosh, Devin just the other day announced like a dollar dividend per share, um, you know, for this quarter. Uh, that's what they want to see. So I'm sure there are CEOs out there, you know, sort of taking credit for it. But quite frankly, this was, I don't know, it was almost a grassroots thing. Investors said, hey, no, 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 you're not going to do that. And it's actually, what's funny is it's almost like a, a parent telling a child, uh, meaning this discipline has kept production fairly steady in the United States. We're, we're, we're around 11, 11 and a half million barrels. We haven't varied from that much in the last six to, to nine months. Um, well, if you think about it, we are very, we have a lot of demand, we're tight on supply, and we're not really increasing production a whole lot. So what has that done? It has raised prices. So the profit margin that they're making now is tremendous versus a year ago. But it came from the shareholders saying, no, you're not going to do that anymore. Um, plus, you know, the other part too, Russell, is from sort of a, an environmental, social, and governance, an ESG standpoint, uh, a lot of the capital has moved away from fossil fuel companies. So if they wanted to borrow, there are less institutions. Higher education is, is a big one, right? Um, socially conscious higher education. There are a lot of endowment funds now that are being criticized for having investments in oil and gas. So some of that is also drying up. Um, it's the perfect world if you're an oil and gas producer because higher prices, steady production, you're not investing a whole lot incrementally. Um, you know, and so kind of here we are. Now, that being said, I, I would say, Russell, that, that got us to the $90 level, a true supply-demand imbalance. The other thing that's happened is because production is lagging behind demand, we've been drawing down our inventories. So the United States right now, in terms of things stored uh, crude, stored gasoline, stored heating oil, stored diesel, we're at a seven-year level. So that, that idea that demand picked up, production hasn't kept pace. Yeah, you have to turn and you've got to look at your inventories. And so we're drawing those down as well. So like I said, that's why I believe uh, at the $90 level, I would, I, I would argue that we are, that's, that price has been supported by, by the supply-demand imbalance, which is global. It isn't just the United States. But this, this past week when we saw the 95, that's a fear factor. That jumped the 95 was totally predicated upon the situation with Russia and Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And that situation is not quite resolved yet. It's still very much a ball in the air. Nobody's sure exactly where it's going to land. And that would absolutely have a major impact on commodities markets, not least uh, oil and, and natural gas, because Russia also a massive supplier of natural gas, right? That's correct. Yes. Number three supplier of oil in the world. Uh, I guess I'm thinking they're number two. We're, we're actually the number one supplier, or number one producer of, of natural gas these days. Uh, we're also the number one exporter of liquefied natural gas. But you're exactly right. Um, anything, you know, if Russia were to make a move and if, you know, uh, European nations, NATO, the United States say, okay, here comes some sanctions, the, the thought pattern is, at least from the marketplace, the oil marketplace perspective is, Somehow, um, those who are buying gas from Russia will have to stop buying or buying gas and oil um, would stop. Now, 
that raises a big if in my mind. You know, Western Europe, Europe is pretty much dependent on Russia oil and Russian natural gas. So if you can get that kind of cooperation in the winter time, um, I, I think that that's doubtful. Now, let's just say if, if we have this, either we have stalemate or we have some progress through March, when we get to spring and energy demand goes down, we might find those countries more willing to say, yeah, you know what? If Russia does this, we're going to cut off um, imports from Russia. So I hear a lot of rhetoric these days about how we used to be oil independent and now we're not. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to tell you that I think that's just silly because we've never stopped importing oil. And what I try to explain to people is there's oil and there's oil. Some oil can be used for heating homes or making cars or manufacturing and others can't. There's, you got to have the right kinds of oil, I guess is what I'm saying. And, I mean, you know, not necessarily is the stuff that you get off the shale the right kind of oil for what you want to do, right? That's were exactly we ever true. Were we ever energy independent? Full? No, no. It was a term that was bounced around. In other words, um, you know, let, let's just say we got to being energy self-sufficient. Um, we right now, I mean, we're, we're in the off-peak season for gasoline uh, production, right? So refineries right now, they're running... Uh, less than 80% uh, of, the, of the total capacity. So right now, they're using about 16 million barrels a day of oil, okay? all U.S. refineries in total. Well, as a country, as of last week, we were producing 11.6 million barrels of oil. So yeah, where are we going to get the other oil? We do have to import it. Um, fortunately for us, uh, half of the oil we import does come from Canada. So we pick about 3 million barrels a day from Canada. Um, but to your point, refineries are set up to receive a certain grade of oil. So either they're going to have to buy just that grade or um, they buy different kinds of grades and they have to blend it. Um, and to your point, you know, 11.6 million barrels a day, 70% of that is the shale oil that you referred to. It's a lighter oil. I mean, so for instance, if you had a, a beaker of standard oil and a beaker of shale oil side by side, you would see a noticeable difference in color. The lighter oil, you know, if you think about it, it's somewhat common sense. You cannot refine as many products out of that lighter oil that you can out of the heavier oil. Um, so yes, we, we import because we have to, um, and, and we do need certain grades that come from other countries that we don't produce ourselves. And so, you know, when people talk about the price at the pump um, and, and whether or not that's impacted by the global oil market, it certainly is. We are importers and we are exporters. And so whatever that, so for instance, you know, if, if situation with uh, Russia and Ukraine worsens and global oil prices jump up, okay, well then the cost of us to import this additional four to 5 million barrels a day is going to go up. Were we ever a net exporter of oil? There have been days, yes. Um, it, it, it's very, very rare. We are... We are net exporters of natural gas, right? but there have been one or two days where it just happened to turn out. Well, okay, I'm, I'm going to get technical. We have never been a net exporter of petroleum, Russell, but what you will find is we have been net exporters of all petroleum products because we export gasoline, we export diesel, we export jet fuel. Um, you know, so yes, when you take all in, 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 uh, in combined, 
we have been at times a net exporter of total petroleum and petroleum related products. Gotcha. All right. And, and you mentioned that about half of, so we're importing six, between six and 7 million barrels a day, say, and about half of it coming from Canada. So did, um, you know, putting the kibosh on the XL pipeline in any way curtail that activity? Because I don't think we were getting any oil down. It was never completed, right? Well, th there's there's actually, uh, there is a Keystone pipeline that's already in place. That's, the, there's the two, that's yeah, the, I've always right. forget that, right? That's right, yeah. The, the controversial one is what's known as Keystone XL. So there, there is a pipeline that brings in the so-called, we call it, it's bitumen, the tar sands oil that's produced in Alberta. It does come to a central point in Illinois, a big hub, and then comes down to Cushing. So we've been getting Canadian bitumen for decades. The, the proposal was, okay, let's increase the volume by building Keystone XL. Um, one of the pieces that actually did happen is a, a, a pipeline that goes from Cushing down to the refinery corridor in East Texas. That was part of this Keystone XL project. Didn't need a, a presidential uh, permit for international border crossing. Whereas the piece coming from Alberta uh, across into the United States did. Um, but my concern about that is, is actually twofold. That would have been an additional 800,000 barrels a day of oil. Um, and it is the kind of oil we need because it is thicker and it can be blended with what we produce, the lighter shale oil. So kind of concerned, I, I believe that would have helped. That's also 800,000 barrels we don't buy from some other country, like in the Middle East. So when people talk about energy security, I truly believe that the Keystone XL aided uh, furthered energy security for the United States. But, but the, I think the overriding thing that, that bothered me the most was, yes, you know what? They, they basically scrape this stuff. Like if people could picture tar balls on a beach, they're scraping this stuff and they use steam to separate the oil and sand. Um, and that steam is using natural gas. So yes, the process in Alberta is highly intensive. It does give off greenhouse gases. Um, but to me, that's the Canadian that's their situation. That's their problem. What we said, what we did here was we have U.S. environmentalists who said, well, we don't want that pipeline because they're going to create additional greenhouse gases. And I just found flaws in that logic. OK, you want to talk about uh, pipeline safety? All right. I get some of those issues, definitely. Um, but to say that, well, we're going to protest this because the Canadians are going to increase their greenhouse gases. That's up to the Canadians. And, and the flaw in their logic is it's almost as if they thought, well, the Canadians are going to stop producing them. No, it's a commodity that they own that they're going to produce. In fact, there's um, a pipeline called Trans Mountain that is going to take that same oil and run it to the west coast of Canada, and it will be exported to Asia. So, you know, just again, a lot of flawed logic. So you're not happy about them you know, ending the XL project, but on the other hand, it wasn't the the thing that made us not in. See, this is the kind of of just um, how how I put it, urban legend stuff that that we deal with a lot from people. Well, you know, a new president came in and he shut down the XL pipeline, and that's why we're not energy independent anymore. It's such a convoluted, mendacious, frankly, deliberately deceptive. Um, sort of storyline, all aimed at making a political point that I don't think is true. I don't think who sits in the White House necessarily has a hell of a lot to do 
with the price of tea in China, much less the price of oil on the West Texas Intermediate crude benchmark, right? Yeah, I could yeah. be wrong, but... Now, Russell, I agree. There, You know, on the one hand, the critics, and I don't care whether it's the previous president or the current president. Right, both sides. Right, the critics are, you know, they, they have a slant, they're taking a position, but they're not, they don't fully understand how it all works, or they understand, but that doesn't help the point that they wish to make. In other words, you know, I've been asked about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Um, you know, presidents, that's a political tool. There's no choice about it. And, and the amount, even with what Biden has released, the amount he's, he's released is, is basically minimal compared to our consumption. You know, the last amount that was released was a total of 32 million barrels spread out uh, over several months. Well, refineries are using 16 million barrels a day right now. So had he dumped it into the marketplace, okay, we have two days of refinery supply. <laughs> But it's more, you know, the market says, oh, there's additional oil coming in because the president's selling from the SPR. No, it's, 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 it's not making much of a dent at all. It's a political thing. I don't care who it is. You know, multiple presidents over time, gasoline prices have gone up. They go, oh, we're going to release the US SPR. That's not enough to bring prices back down. Um, and, and to your point about Keystone XL, um, you know, Denying the permit right now, anyhow, or you know, when, as soon as Biden got in office, that, that piece of the pipeline wasn't going to be built for a couple of years. So even let's just say he gave he didn't veto it a year ago, you're still a year and a half to two years out before we would see that oil making it to Cushing, Oklahoma. So yes, you know what? Long term, yes, there was supply source that I believe we need. They chose you know not to give the permit, but it's got nothing to do with $92 oil today. Or $3.20 gas in Tulsa, Oklahoma, because that's what people are screaming about. Oh, exactly. my God, it's costing me twice as much to fill up my pickup. And, you know, golly, uh, there's been a worldwide pandemic, and that has had an impact. And it's I'm not saying that is the only problem, but I don't think that the XL Keystone XL pipeline, one way or another, made and you just well, no, it, 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 yeah, and Russell, some of the arguments too were about the leases, right? I mean, when Biden got in there, leases, put, a, yes. put, a, put a moratorium on federal lands. Well, because they were looking at the permits, and they were they were saying that the previous administration had not issued the permits legitimately. Well, those have been reviewed, those have been released. But even then, holding up leases, it's not like they were going to go out tomorrow and drill, and we'd see oil within a month or two. I mean, it, it, it's they're pointing at things, which just to me says. They don't truly understand how the, how the system works. Now, one of the other wild cards that we're seeing, though, too, Russell, is this whole OPEC plus group. OK, mm. so, you know, they had they obviously had cut output during the, uh, the pandemic and the loss of demand. And so last summer they had this situation where over an eight month period, they were going to increase their output by 400,000 barrels a month. So that so essentially 3.2 million barrels per day of output had been cut and we're going to restore it a month at a time. Well, Every month they say, yep, we're going to next month. You know, so right now they already said March 1st. Yeah, another 400,000 barrels of production. They're not producing that. They're so saying it, but they're not doing it. It's not happening. And, and it's not it's not like they're, you know, it's not like saying we're, we're going to do it and then intentionally holding it back. No, they don't have the oil that, that they thought they had. There, you know, there have been troubles in places like um, Libya, Nigeria and others where it's like, guess what? They're not meeting the current quota. They're not about to be able to increase next month. So, you know, again, that's why I said it really is, uh, this is truly a fundamental supply demand situation. Demand is going up, supply is tight, everybody knows that. So yes, when you have a, a Russia-Ukraine situation, 
you add three to five dollars a barrel of fear factor until we can understand what's happening. And as you pointed, this is a very uh, this this situation is very flux. We don't know from day to day. And and until there's resolution of that, yeah, we could shoot back up to ninety five in a heartbeat. Um, now, of course, another thing is going on is so evidently we're making progress with the Iran nuclear talks. Um, that tended to play into the drop in prices yesterday, at least for crude oil, because if you know if that's negotiated successfully, then the ban on exports they're going to add, be able to add another million a day of, of uh, production. So you know there, every day there's these crazy dynamics um, that are going on. Do I think we're going to see hundred dollar oil soon? I really don't. But if Russia if Russia crosses that border, all bets are off. We could we'll be hundred dollars in a day. Um, and then, you know, to your point, Russell, what happens then is the markets then are going to try to test levels. So let's say Russia invades and all of a sudden there's buying frenzy goes on. We're at 100 bucks. The marketplace is going to sit back and go, hmm, I wonder if somebody will buy at 101 or 102 or 103. So they'll test that. And if there's enough momentum, we could get to 105, 110. I think 125 is out of the question in the near term. And $150, they need to put the crack pipes down. I think that sums up your feelings rather well. I don't think I have to ask you twice on that one. All right. So, well, interesting stuff, Tom. You know, I always like talking to you because, you know, I have just the most basic understandings of business principles and all that kind of stuff, you know, buy cheap, sell dear. I mean, that kind of thing. But it seems to make sense to me that if I'm sitting here as an investor and um, my oil is making me you know, $90, $100. Let's just make it easy, easy math. I'm making $100 a day on my oil because that's what people are willing to pay. And I don't have to do anything but sit here and watch it go up to 101, 102, 105. Why would I go out and, and drill more? Why would I go to the effort to get more if I don't need more? The only thing is, is that, I mean, are you undercutting your own long-term business model by producing a bunch more oil because then prices go down. I mean, again, I have a very basic understanding of all this stuff, but it seems to me like that's why the stockholders are saying, or the, the shareholders are saying, slow your roll. Because I, I know what you guys want to do is go out and pump oil. That's what you do. I want to make money. <laughs> well, sure. Yeah, I, I want a return on my investment. You know, but to your point, Russell, honestly, um, for instance, okay, last week, there was an increase of 22 uh, rigs drilling for oil and gas in the United States. That is the most in one week since the pandemic. So, you know, you're starting to see, I know, which for instance, you know, when, when, a, when an Exxon comes out and says, hey, you know, last quarter we made $9 billion of free cash flow. You know, I, I'm a bit uh, selfish because, you know, my students head into this industry. It's like, well, hey, guys, how about you use five billion of that to pay dividends, and you take four billion and you start drilling more holes and producing more oil? Um, but kind of to your to your example there, yeah, if I'm an oil producer, but to, again, yeah, what is my business plan? What's my longevity? I am drawing oil out, and if I want to stay in business, I'm going to have to find more oil to produce. And you know, again, the other thing is with the prices the way they are, we're let's see here, we fall to about eighty dollars by the end of this year which is still a ridiculously healthy price. So I have the opportunity to forward sell my production. And so maybe that means if I forward sell production, I can start drilling again and be producing additional oil by October or November. 
Um, that's my that's my business model. That's how I stay in business. These you know these shale oil wells are horizontally completed and they draw down very fast, just by the nature. The whole idea of drilling horizontally and completing that reservoir is we're going to suck more oil out um, than we used to. So yeah, so if you're not constantly feeding the reserve machine, if you're not finding new reserves to drill on, yeah, you can sit back and get your, your fat paychecks now, but then you could run out of oil in two or three years if you don't increase the properties and increase the activity. And the market certainly is providing that incentive. Okay. And so when you say we're 80 by the end of the year, you're looking at futures, right? Yes, correct. Yes. So for instance, sure that's that's yeah. not a prediction. That's what oil <laughs> to be delivered at the end of the year right now is going at is already at 80 bucks. Correct. Right. So we're trailing off. So for, for March futures on the New York Berkeley Exchange, we're sitting around $92 today. And we, we drop as we go through the year. So, so basically the market is saying, okay, yeah, you know what? March oil is worth $92, but right now we think by the time we get to December, it'll be worth $80. Now, that tells you two things. They think demand, either A, demand is going to fall off rapidly, or, or B, there's going to be an increase in production. So, I mean, who knows? It's, it's, as you know, right now, it's all speculative until you actually settle up these contracts and we find out you know, physically what's going on. Gotcha. All right, Tom, always an education to sit with you, Professor, and thank you <laughs> very much uh, for doing this. Any last thoughts real quick before we wrap up? No, you know, the, the, yeah, the thing I will say is, again, um, I truly believe this is supply demand. $90, um, I think, is the level at which the current situation exists for um, supply and demand. Anything above that level is fear factor based on this. Uh, we're, you know, all eyes are on Russia, Ukraine. And Quite frankly, you know, what's interesting, too, is the Omicron variant has moved out of the picture. There seems to be no concern about demand destruction um, as, it as it relates to the spread of the Omicron um, variant. So kind of an interesting development. Switch over, focus on Russia, Ukraine. All right. Good stuff, brother. Thank you. Yeah. Good talking to you, Russell. Take care of yourself. Stay safe and try to stay warm today, OK? Yes. <laughs> All right. Talk soon. You've been listening to KRMG In-Depth, the podcast. I'm always looking for stories about the people, places, and politics of Oklahoma. I'm easy to find on Facebook, or you can always email me and the entire KRMG news team. The email address is news at krmg.com. I'm Russell Mills. Thanks for the listen. 